Welcome back to another episode of Customers Who Click. Today, I've got another super interesting topic lined up. My guest, James Denker, is the Director of Partnerships at Imagination Media. We're going to be talking about unified commerce. In short, this involves linking up pretty much every aspect of a business so the data can be available for use anywhere. Whether it's customer service related, fulfillment, in-store activity, whatever, the idea is that all this data gets properly linked together so the business can provide a much more accurate and engaging customer experience. Hi, James. Thanks for joining me today. Um, Could you introduce yourself a bit? Tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your background and why you're doing what you do at the moment. Yeah, no worries. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so my name is James Denker. I've been in technology in various capacities in the past 11 years. Um, So it started back in my time with IBM, where I was a consultant, uh, kind of like a technical consultant, if you will, for AT&T on doing a bit of digital transformation to legacy systems into microservices, moving all different types of software development life cycles, um, you know, project management, sales, RFPs, marketing, you name it. I was tagged to it, wearing a bunch of hats there. And then I moved into e-commerce about four years ago, uh, leveraging marketing technologies such as, you know, omni-channel, email, SMS, push notifications for a company called Dot Digital. Then I moved over into uh, the review space, you know, leveraging a partnership channel. Um, which is where I really kind of currently stay and in leveraging, you know, this kind of like B2B model, if you will, of leveraging relationships to drive, you know, um, a joint brand narrative on what these solutions may look like and how that can ultimately, you know, drive um, engagement and uh, conversions on customers' websites with the review platform. So you can imagine loyalty, email, such and such. And then, uh, last year, I moved over to uh, an e-commerce uh, global system integrator and marketing agency called Imagination Media, where I've leveraged my um, you know, uh, domain expertise in the marketing space to help drive all different types of um, value to the clients um, you know, within that role. Awesome. Sounds great. Um, yeah, I am. Um... I've actually, I think I worked with Dot Digital, although they were called something else before, weren't they? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, there was Dot Mailer, right? Dot Mailer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I worked with them, it must be like 10 years ago now or something, um, quite right at the start of my career. I'm quite I'm quite intrigued about this idea of unified commerce that you um, you kind of brought up with me um, be- before the podcast. So do you, do you want to kind of tell us a bit about that? What is unified, unified commerce? Where does it fit in with things? Yeah, so... You know, when people talk about unified commerce, there there are some you know areas of you know um, I would say misconception, um, but holistically at a, at a thirty thousand foot view, it's really an abstract idea, and it's about describing the act of combining product and customer data, and how that relates to retailers. So ultimately, they can provide a personalized experience across all other channels. You know, I, I think. You know, maybe the, the two terms that get intertwined is unified commerce and omni-channel, but unified is kind of the parent to it, you know, where you're co- you're collecting all that data. And I guess an, an example would be like, um, if we're going to take email, for example, they have these omni-channel experiences, email, push, SMS, but the, the next level of that email service platform would be something called like a content data platform where you're leveraging all Google analytic data, behavioral data on your website, email data, the segmentation that comes from it, um, and all the analytics tied into that backend. So you can ultimately align with your brand narrative 
to copywriting, branding content, and putting it into a workflow that resonates with engaged and potentially non-engaged audiences. Okay, cool. So it's, it's kind of about taking the data from basically everywhere, uh, combining it to one, <laughs> and then allowing you to really uh, use that data to personalize the experiences. Uh, totally. You know, it, there's, I mean, historically, you know, going back, you know, um, maybe even before I was getting into the IT space 11 years ago, there's just, there was just a lot of siloed technology out there, you know, single centralized platforms, stuff wasn't chatting with each other. So like middleware came into this huge play and then it even got bigger than middleware. So if you're talking e-commerce, people want a mobile commerce, order fulfillment, inventory management, customer relationship management, also known as CRMs, and all these different technologies to integrate into a single platform. And it really kind of rids themselves of those siloed internal channels that are operating um, in such in such a manner, you know? Yeah. Well, would it be kind of reasonably accurate to suggest that like Zapier it was, was, is kind of trying to do that? So uh, as a tool which breaks down the bit of those barriers and helps link up other tools without yeah, having I to mean, create their own integrations. I'd say they, they you know they were kind of on the on the cutting edge of just trying to you know leveraging data sets and um, you know here at Imagination Media we, we've leveraged tools such as ETLs kind of like extract transform and loading um, and that was you know one of those uh, data mapping solutions um, and that's essentially what you know Zapier was doing which it, I would imagine to be a 2.0 of that, where if you want to take a first name, a last name, and an email address from an order, right, out of your OMS system that was processed by the e-commerce uh, platform, and you want to map that to um, Clavio, for example, or Dot Digital, for example, for your ESP, you know, you, you if it didn't have, you know, an API integration, you could leverage a Zapier, or you could leverage an ETL, or you could could leverage APIs for that transaction. So that was kind of like the start of, you know, uh, this concept of unified converts in its infancy. Yeah. Do you see it as like there is one big central point that everything should be pushing data to, and then can also pull data from, or is it more around? It does go from kind of the e-commerce platform to Clavio. Or should it go from e-commerce platform to central data point and then to Clavio? Does that make sense? Yeah, I'd imagine if you're, you know, you're leveraging something like a content data platform like a CDP, you know, you'd be pulling everything into a hub. And in a way, you could consider an email platform, an e-commerce solution, an OMS technology, um, pulling in you know, setting and getting and, and pushing and pulling all that data as, you know, CDP is kind of being the hub in a lot of ways. So um, there is um, there is a concept of kind of like the nucleus of, you know, the ecosystem. And you could, you could view, you know, CDP in that light, you know, where it wouldn't really matter um, as long as the data points are set up correctly you need to have that central hub of where that data comes from. So whether it comes from e-com, CDP, then it goes out to your ESP for your push notification for your transactional email that you purchase something. I would say your CDP would be your hub for, for that type of uh, approach. And at the start, you kind of, you mentioned uh, some misconceptions. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
yeah, the, there's some misconceptions, you know, when you're talking about maybe like an omni-channel, you know, which is essentially many different digital and physical channels so that that customer experience really is um, lower um, lower friction points, lower the barrier of entry to make it ultimately seamless. Um, and, you know, that's in one bucket, right? And if we're going to talk about unified commerce, it, it's really a bit different because you're removing and leaving out um, a section of data because it's really designed to ensure those systems are connected and communicating and fr- and kind of um, moving and uh, in this fluid free, you know, uh, free state, right? Um, you know, if you compare the two, it's really because omnichannel is held together with, you know, some of these rudimentary processes and, you know, kind of complexities in terms of how those integrations are structured. Um, and the strategy, you know, is kind of surrounding data silos and how it, you know, kind of slows up efficiency. And, you know, the, as you can imagine, those things can go, you know, can grow quite expensive. Um, and then on the other front, you know, you, you take and look at, you know, unified commerce. Really, the goal of it is, is to have, you know, mid-size or small companies or enterprises, um, everyone use this because it's a strategy to provide businesses that single source of, you know, guidance or truth or like that nucleus that I was mentioning to help drive that efficiency and decrease barriers of entry and decrease that friction and increase engagement across those customers' uh, uh, channels. And, um, you know, to wrap it up, it's it's really um, more than just simply connecting different systems um, as Omnichannel does. You know, really the unified commerce, you know, macroeconomic is, you know, looking at that centralized platform to have that consistency and accuracy in terms of that data across all of the channels that you're utilizing. So hopefully that can um, put omni-channel in a bucket and then unified commerce in a bucket. So there, there's no misconceptions along those lines, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think I agree. So like omni-channel is kind of still each channel doing its own thing, but pushing that data in if it's if it's kind of required elsewhere. Whereas omni uh, sorry, unified commerce is more, those are all like entry areas for the data, but then it goes to a central system, which actually really owns it and therefore allows that data to be kind of freely used by anything whenever it needs it. Definitely. Unified commerce is de- definitely like the the parent to, you know, the, to everything really online. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. So before, when we, when we spoke last, actually, we talked a bit about um, kind of marketing pop-ups, actually, and, and uh, in-store. Um, oh, sorry, not in-store. Uh, I guess uh, the, the death of in-store a little bit, and but how there might still be opportunities with pop-ups. Um, yeah. Um, you know, that, that's interesting, you know, with this concept of pop-ups. Like, you know, one of my partners, Klarna, you know, for tack, um, breaking up payments, right? Yep. Um, to increase the average order value for, you know, consumers that wanted to buy something recently did one. Um, and I think it really just helps on, you know, the PNL, you know, statements at the end of the day, because, you know, um, 
there's a lot of different things happening. So for example, you know, traditionally a lot of brands would want a flagship store in New York, right? And they don't even care if they lose money, they want it for the brand awareness and they want it for the marketing, right? Um, but if you're tied into these like 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollar a month leases for four or five years, um, you know, that, that could have a, a substantial impact, you know, to your bottom line. So, you know, reinventing, you know, native advertising in the form of, you know, brick and mortar is kind of evolving in a sense of, you know, pop-ups. So, you know, I, I believe, um, uh, I was in New York a couple of years ago and they had one for, I believe it was for Nordstrom. And they, they did this experimentation where it's more of an experience. You could go in, uh, you could have a drink, you could go in and try something on. You can go in and get a shave, you can get a haircut. And it's kind of like this inclusive experience where it increases people time there. You know, that would be the equivalent of like maybe a bounce right to your website, right? If you can get someone in the store longer, get them more engaged and give them more of a personalized experience, like having a stylist help you with that. Um, you know, they're going to end up, you know, fill, putting something and filling their bag up. Um, so, you know, that while that, you know, that term, you know, maybe like retail apocalypse that you may be kind of floating around, um, th- there's this concept of expansion and contraction, you know, around that term, you know, maybe that was coined maybe 10, 11 years ago. Um, but as, as this physical footprint evolves, you know, we're really taking a look at, you know, how advanced development, virtual implementation, and, you know, how you can have a deeper commitment to this omni-channel experience. Um, so hopefully it kind of gives you a little bit of context of where people are, you know, kind of uh, putting their investments and how to minimize the exposure of long-term contracts you know, as it relates to, you know, physical uh, brick and mortar presence. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're obviously seeing the same thing here. You know, loads of loads of stores closing, especially with the the year that we've had. And yeah, we have a similar place uh, like Ox, Ox, sorry, Oxford Street. It's generally where the flagship stores are. Uh, I, I doubt there are many at all that that actually make money uh, from that store. Mm. But there, but but it is just a store. There's nothing special about it. Like you know, Primark is there. It it is just a store. Um, there is no. They, they call it a flagship store, but, you know, you, you go around these stores and it, there's no difference to another store. It's, I guess it's just a flagship store because it's on Oxford Street. Um, but they're really expensive to run. You know, they're really high, um, high value uh, leases. But yeah, these, these pop-ups are more, uh, definitely more interesting. And, and I suppose brands can be more flexible. So if they do go down the route of that experience, like you mentioned, it's only going to cost them a lot of money for, maybe a week and so they get yeah. know that cost if it works really well that's great maybe they can do it again sometime but if it doesn't work well they've, they've tested it they've tried it they can move on yeah i mean i definitely kind of um you know, can align to that because it's like everything's all about kind of like what's the latest fashion trend right like what's the latest um thing to do in in a city right and, and it kind of aligns with that narrative of just you know that urban environment and people always want to see what's next what's hot what's trending and if you put something on a timeline 
right? I think Sweet Greens did it in um, in New York. You know, like a super popular you know salad shop with like a new location, but they only did it for a, sh- a super short period of time. It generates interest. It generates buzz. It generates noise. Um, and if it can decrease the overall you know cost of this implementation, it it um, it has these huge spikes in engagement. So, you know, to a certain extent, at least at a micro level, you can gain that exposure that that brand's looking for, for that native advertising component without exposing yourself to, you know, um, you know, a financial burden of a long-term lease. And, you know, you could even leverage, you know, staging companies and stuff like that as it relates to the storefront and not even purchase the inventory, you know, the inventory, um, I'm sorry, the furniture that you would need for that store. Um, yeah. And it, it, you know, it could go in a bunch of different ways as it relates to POS, you know, OMS loyalty, but we can get into that a bit later, but, um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to see, especially during the times of, um, you know, the past 12, 13 months of COVID, you know, I think we're just starting to see that inflection point where people are starting to come back into the stores. So brands are currently really thinking about, you know, how they're going to, um, you know, leverage that yeah, brick and mortar storefront, um, you know, as, as things begin to open up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, we, we've definitely had our fair share of decent pop-ups in London. Um, and obviously they create a lot of buzz for a brand and that, that must have an effect on online sales as well, um, particularly for those people who don't get to go to it. They might hear about it, see it, and go, okay, I'll you know go and check out that site. Um, I remember, I, I think it was In and Out Burger came here once. Um, it, it was it was something like that. It was it was an American fast food brand that was here for about a week in London, one store, and and that was it. So, but that's so that's that's one that I find odd because it doesn't seem like there was a long term plan with that, like at all. It was. And, it, and I can't see how it's really a marketing stunt because there is no store now. So unless it was just a bit of a market market research piece, but uh, yeah. Yeah, know, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, it's quite interesting because, you know, my time at Trustpilot was kind of like the, the inverse of that where Trustpilot's really well known in the UK. It's, you know, you see it on the side of, uh, you know, buses, you see them, you know, um, in all types of organic and native advertising as well as paid. But, you know, over the past four to five years, they've done, you know, a pretty decent job of expanding themselves in the U.S. Um, and while I'm not on the board of, you know, In-N-Out Burger, but I I think I resonate with your statement where it's definitely kind of like, um, you know, we want to test the audience. We want to test the engagements of a new segment and a new vertical and a new demographic to see what the engagement is, to see if we would actually want to expand in that territory. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they thought it through and they and they did have a plan with this, but you've got to be careful that you don't misunderstand that data because obviously mm. that that pop-up was rant. Uh, I think there were queues basically all the time, you know, super popular. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if they launched over here, it would do well. Um, yeah. Although yeah. We, we've got Shake Shack and, and Five Guys and those, those are both doing really, really well here. So, um, But In-N-Out Burger is just California, isn't it? predominantly in the west i'd imagine but you know i think that's kind of where they started and progressively worked their way um but yeah i mean you know there's different chains that you know have larger segments in specific geographies in the u.s um even down here in south florida there's different segments 
in like supermarkets, for example, as there is in the Northeast where I'm originally from. Um, but it, it's interesting to see how these brands are leveraging brick and mortar retail and, and testing out these market segments. And uh, to your point, you know, you, you got to do multiple tests, you know, to ensure that there's a common trend among that data is marketing is a bit of just planning, testing, executing, learning, and, you know, reiterating essentially. Yeah. You know? So uh, what, what are some of the mistakes brands make then? Um, I guess if, if they're running both in-store and online experiences, um, yeah, well, either big or just common mistakes you see where, um, where maybe things aren't linked up quite as well as they could be. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to this concept of unified commerce and what technologies you're leveraging. It's one thing to have native brand awareness where you're doing a pop-up store, you're going to invest a ton of money in brick and mortar um, just to get the eyeballs on it, to have that brand, you know, acknowledgement from a potential customer. But what a lot of things um, that I'm starting to see is leveraging unified commerce and the technologies that are that are available today, such as like teamwork commerce. So an example would be not leveraging your POS to be operating on the same uh, order management system. So you could leverage that data and having unique coupon codes that you could extract and store as well as online. Like I was literally just working with a pretty sizable jewelry brand and they have an issue where you can't leverage your points in store. You can only redeem them online. And while they only have a couple stores for those 10 to 15, 20,000 customers, that's not a great experience, right? Um, So really harmonizing those platforms and how they can work together But I would say loyalty is a huge piece that needs to get uh, adopted, not only from the website and leveraging those unique coupon codes for um, retention marketing, growth marketing to expand customer lifetime value to uh, to that specific consumer and allowing them to redeem it wherever you have an engagement with that, with whatever you have engagement with that brand. And really just kind of harmonizing, you know, um, a loyalty flow, like a couple of things we were working on is triggering points 30 days after an order is placed and then 30 days after that and setting up reminders to leverage that a birthday point system. Um, a lot of times brands are manually pulling lists and then sending a code that expires, right? So trying to find a ways to automate that is super, super important as it relates to loyalty um, and harmonizing online and in-store experiences. I think there's definitely opportunity there. I come from kind of a startup background originally. And Mm. I mean, our approach would generally be, we're happy to do things manually. In fact, in a lot of these things, we're not even going to (laughs) bother with the technical side because it's so much quicker, but we test it. And if we like it, then we look to automate. But that was always the key thing. And, and there were some times when we, would, we rejected something because we could see no route to being able to, optimi- uh, to automate and scale that in the future. And if you can't do that, it means, you know, e- either you run the test, you like it, and you say, well, that's great, but we can't do it anymore. Um, or you potentially scale, in a, or scale it in a quite expensive way. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with manually doing it as long as 
you, you optimize that eventually at some point and, and get it going. So, uh, you know, but I, I mean, lots of lots of tech platforms, you don't even have to do it manually anymore. The, the data can link up well enough. So if you catch your birthday, you can pass that birthday through, give them points, send them emails. Yeah, I mean, you definitely brought up a good point. And it, it really depends on, you know, um, the, you know, your subscriber base that's listening to this podcast, really, you know, and what types of demographics um, that are involved with that. You know, if we're talking about a lot of brands that are, you know, humble in nature or startup in nature and, you know, you know, dollars and cents are super, super important to them and they, they can't spend the money on certain loyalty solutions like, um, you know, like a loyalty line or smile.io or Yappo or something like that, you, you might have to do it manually. And there's ways that you can optimize, you know, at leveraging tools like, you know, Klaviyo or .digital and just getting specific pre-built workflows out for those loyalty programs at, at, at a very infant level, right? Because you have to have some type of ESP um, that'll allow you to um, kind of, you know, you know move in, in, um, in a phased approach, right? Um, yep. So it, it really depends on where you sit at, at a brand level and what discretionary funds you have for these marketing technologies. Like, we have these percentages in imagination media where you should only have, you know, three to 5% of your annual revenue should be attributed to marketing technology. Right. And sometimes that only allows for a couple platforms. Sometimes that allows for 20. Right. Um, and putting a priority system in place on how you want to engage with your audience um, and having that priority system. So, you know, you probably can't get away without having an ESP of some, you know, in some way, shape or form, but loyalty could be a phase two approach and there's ways to navigate it. You just really have to have, um, you know, the, uh, the flexibility to, to work with what you have, like to your point and, and, um, and, and go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, like you say, you don't have to have a loyalty program. You can still reward people. Um, you know, even if it's as simple as saying when someone places their third order, uh, you know, trigger a, a, a coupon code or something via Clavio. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't, don't think you need anything extra to be able to do that. Um, you might be able to do things on on value as well. You know, once you've spent $100, you get some sort of reward or something. Um, it, it definitely sounds like you're from the startup world where, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes a lot of sense, right? Because, um, you, you know, you, you have to just, um, you can't can't spend yourself rich, right? You, you just have to be really mindful about where your dollars and cents are going because, you know, operating online is not cheap, right? And you can spend a ton of money in the blink of an eye. Um, and there's a lot of different ways of, um, you know, keeping a, a healthy cash flow, you know, um, in check really. So I definitely can understand because I've, I've resonated with the, the SMB market as well as the S, you know, the mid market. So um, tailoring to that audience relative to what their needs are key. And I, I just try to help them, you know, you know, leverage the technology that's digestible for them for, you know, the, the functionality, what you can use today versus tomorrow and, and, uh, and so forth. Yeah. Um, I, I like the point you made earlier, actually, about not being able to redeem points in store. 
uh, you see like, a, a lot of the bigger brands you can you know uh, like here we've got uh tesco is not quite the same but the lot i think their their club card works online offline uh, in the same way uh, i guess Ho- uh, holland and barrett's probably the one that comes to mind where they do a loyalty program um they're very keen to push it in store as well and they give you a card uh, not a card like a like a fob to go on your keys um as well as a card and and they do link that up and they do loads of promotions but there's plenty of stores who do probably have online loyalty programs and and you're right like a handful of stores might be two or three could be five but it's you know they they've got their loyalty program through i don't know loyalty line or someone um and Mm -hmm. i i don't actually know if they don't offer in store but generally there is no no link up and probably not even a mention of it um, yeah, like I, I mean, that's why we've leveraged um, Teamwork Commerce, and you know, they're they're in Amaya. I mean, predominantly they're a North American brand that is, that's had quite a bit of success globally at this point with like Uniqlo, Robert Graham, Alexander Wang, Theory. I mean, they're all over. Um, but one of the reasons why they've leveraged that solution is because it's like Apple. You know, Apple built software and hardware in unison. And what um, Teamwork Commerce has done is provided a point of sale system that connects its data to its order management system, so it's easier for you to, you know, leverage that data in a in a in a customer centric view, where you could start, you know, leveraging those types of solutions, you know, from customer, you know, customer loyalty and stuff like that. Cool. So, uh, just out of interest, um, if if a business didn't have stores but wanted to run pop ups, would Teamwork Commerce be would, would that be a good solution for them? Or are they more, you know, you, mm. you, you need dedicated stores because the, the point of sale system needs to be in place for a while? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say there's two degrees of separation from that statement, right? Where I think the pop-up stores might be good um, with maybe, I don't know, like a square or, or something that's just ready to go. Um, and then you can just turn it on and turn it off and you, you don't have any more, um, you know, um, because teamwork commerce is really kind of built for more established brands that have multiple storefronts, you know, like the Yetis of the world. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, what's that? It's not Canada goose, but what's the uh, moose knuckles, you know, like stuff like that um, are brands that are really trying to, you know, be operate on that global level. So, um, you know, maybe they, they, they will change their their model, but you know, for more of the established brands, you could leverage that solution. But you know, as you can imagine, right, there's a ton of uh, POS you know systems out there you can switch on and switch off if if all you're trying to do is a pop up, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, do you, do you see any big trends coming in the way businesses change that online experience? Then, because we, we've talked about that, the offline and, and the pop up that you mentioned around. Uh, engaging people, you know, giving them a haircut, giving them a drink or whatever, um, mm. almost like a like concierge sort of experience, I suppose, in store. Um, yeah, what what do you see coming up in the online side to to create those better the the better experiences online? Yeah, I mean, I mean, from my experience um, from the agency side, you, you kind of get a, a nice holistic grasp of what brands are trying to accomplish. And as you can imagine, every six, 12 months that changes because the technology is, is you know, updated um, or, or transformed in some way. Um, you know, one uh, would be progressive web apps, right? Um, and it's really just 
you know, leveraging technology um, to have a native application. And, you know, really you can turn any website into a, a PWA um, and you can do it. Yeah. I'd say relatively quickly. And it's, um, I'd say it's pretty comprehensive in its nature and, you know, you, you can leverage all types of features with it, you know, within that native solution, like push notifications, offline support, much more, um, you know, it, everyone knows Twitter, right? You, you know, you can visit that site on your smartphone and you can install it on your home screen. Now, you know, when you open uh, the saved Twitter site, you'll notice that it looks and performs just like a native app. You know, there's no brown browser window or anything like that. So essentially there's no difference in, you know, using an Android or an iPhone, you simply just log in, you're good to go. And that's really a major benefit of leveraging a, a web app with PWA in mind. Um, so I definitely noticed some, um, some adoption there, you know, and, and a lot of, um, you know, solutions like Adobe, you know, Adobe's leveraging PWA in a pretty strong way. And we've done that for, you know, a couple of brands over here at Imagination Media. Um, and then once you're, once you're on the platform and, you know, you're, you, you have the website up and you're trying to inc- improve the customer experience, the other two things that stands out to me is augmented reality, virtual reality. Um, like I was working with a jewelry brand just the other day that's kind of going through the solutions in the market, three kit, ATL, ATL, uh, I think Tangle B, there's another, there's a bunch of them, lavar.io. And they're looking at um, product sizing comparisons, stacking jewelry pieces, you know, having an option to stack one or more, um, you know, can you stack it in the same order or varying combinations? I think Kendra Scott's done a pretty good job from an AR VR perspective in, the, in that vertical virtual try-ons. Um, so the jewelry space is pretty important where, you know, it's a super high average order value, you know, four or five figure type of things. And it's an emotional purchase as it relates to jewelry, right? So if you can find ways of having a product size comparison or stacking it or a virtual try-on, I think that that would um, ultimately decrease in returns um, because it has such such a strong emotional connection. And if you can almost feel it and touch it, I, I think that is kind of the two degrees of separation that wasn't formally there before AR and VR came on. And the same thing would go with furniture. Um, And furniture is a huge thing right now of AR and VR. Um, You know, you do have to convert your images from econ photography to have it in maybe like a, a CAD model or have a 3d rendering component. And then, yeah, there is a software fee. Um, And I think, depending on what your vertical is, those two, if you have discretionary income, would decrease your returns um, and it would increase your engagement and decrease your bounce rate on your website. For sure, there's no question there for those two verticals. And especially for furniture, like think about it. What if you, you know, um, everybody's got their measuring tape before they buy something in the store um, <laughs> and you yeah. could almost you could almost take them a bit seriously when they walk into a furniture store with a measuring tape. You know that they're ready to buy, right? Yeah. Um, but let's say you're online and you're sitting in your kitchen, and 
hey, I want my dining room table to fit. So let's see if I can, you know, leverage my iPad to overlay that, you know, what that would look like in there. And um, it's super expensive to ship for furniture. Sometimes it's freight, you know, um, in terms of the delivery methods. And they don't want to, you know, risk having stuff coming back and forth from, you know, the warehouse. Pretty sure IKEA are doing loads in the uh, in the AR of yeah AR space. Um, I think they launched a new app about a year or so ago, um, and they've always been the kind of business that you'd expect to be kind of running with that and be in the forefront. Um, but what I found interesting uh, last year, some at some point, was I was looking at a jewelry site, and it was a relatively small business i think um you know the, the website didn't seem very very modern but at one point i came across this function where you could select uh it was a particular type of jewelry it might have been a watch uh, a watch or a bracelet and you could and it had an image of a, an arm with the watch on it and you could change the skin tone which mm. i thought was really 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 clever um because that, that probably is something that a lot of people consider um, they'll they'll want a certain type of metal or something because it complements their skin. Um, but it was the first time I'd ever seen something like that used on a jewelry store, and it just surprised me that it was this. What I'm assuming is quite a small store that I'd never really heard of before. So you know that yeah, it's stuff like that that will work really well. Uh, and with the, uh, on the again on the furniture side, I remember when I bought my flat originally, the developers provided me with a 3D plan of the of the the flat and the but the plan came with like uh like furnishings so the idea was to show me what my flat is supposed to look like when it's built because uh, i built mm. i bought it off plan and uh, i look back at it now and i'm so glad i didn't use that model to actually plan the layout of my flat and the furniture i bought because it was <laughs> all over the place well off yeah. um, but the ability now to in fact, there's a there's an app a friend sent me, but the ability to kind of build out that flat, um, almost like in The Sims, actually, if you could basically mm-hmm. t- turn The Sims into a, a tool, build the outline, you know, the floor plan, and then go to a website like you know John Lewis IKEA uh, Furniture Village or whatever, start picking their products out and and just adding it to this this floor plan, um, you know, that'd be amazing because you'd you'd map it all out. You'd be able to see the gaps in between all the different pieces of furniture. So, you know, you can walk around it all and stuff. And then all you've got to do is add it to bag and, and ship it. Um, but each time I've bought furniture, I've gone to the store. You know, I've spent ages searching online, found mm. the one I want, and then I've gone in store to check it. Yeah. I mean, furniture is one of those things, right? It, it's a bit, it's a bit challenging to get people, especially, you know, like my parents' generation that are, you know, in their 70s to get away from the brick and mortars, to have confidence, to leverage, you know, online experiences and and to improve that. Um, I think it's it's kind of an extreme analogy, but it's like having a plane land by itself without a pilot. You know what I mean? It's like, where's that comfort level that a, a person can entrust a brand that it's going to fit. It's going to look the way that it should, and I can ins- and I can insert that experience um, in a way that builds trust, transparency, 
credibility and uh, I guess you could say accountability into into that transaction so they don't actually have to go into the store. I don't think we're totally there yet, but I think the younger generation's more adapted to it. Well, we've got tools as well, like um, like FitFinder and mm-hmm. um, TrueFit, yeah, um, where you kind of f- f- uh, fill in your measurements, you create an account, you fill in your measurements, and then on these sites, you can log into your uh, TrueFit account or FitFinder, and it will give you an idea of which size of the piece of clothing you should buy. And it will say, mm. oh, on this site for this product, we recommend you buy in a large. And on another, another site, it might be a medium. That sort of stuff's really good because, again, it really reduces that uh, that return rate because you're actually getting the right product in the first place. Yeah, uh, I, I'd say apparel is definitely included into in that, you know, that fit finder, you know, that personalized experience as well. Um and it ultimately kind of relates to this post-purchase strategy. Um, and we actually built a post-purchase solution. You know, we're a global system integrator. We build websites. We do outsource CTO, outsource CMO. We do growth marketing. We do, you know, uh, retention marketing, conversion rate optimization. Um, one thing that we've learned is that post-purchase is actually a totally underutilized area where everyone's getting tracking codes from UPS, USPS, DHL, FedEx, and all the other types of um, shipping carriers in the UK, um, where you get this like ambiguous tracking link and it's not on brand and it's not you know communicating in a way that is continuing that brand narrative post-purchase. You're like, for example, your your um, your order tracking CMS landing page. It's just a bunch of different scans that come from the carrier, right? Why not transform that and leverage your brand, leverage capture forms for opt-ins for email, so you can convert that customer from a transactional email experience to you know, putting them in into their nurture campaigns so they can leverage loyalty and, and what have you. What about leveraging product upsells, cross sells, right? You got the hat, now you need the scarf, right? On that order tracking confirmation page. It's real estate that is totally underutilized. And it it literally is like someone's cutting a piece of paper down right in the middle. They purchase something and it, 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 you just kind of lose the brand, right? So we built a company called RelayCloud.io. It's really a, just a post-purchase customer platform designed from a merchant requirement. So not only can we solution the business problems, um, but we can solution it to other merchants as well. We brought it to market in that fashion. And you can you know, return stuff, um, and get a, a gift card. You can have product SKUs on rules on what you want to allow or deny um, or submit for a request and automate that entire experience. Um, and I think that was an area um, that, you know, maybe came about with like the Narvars and the return leads of the market, but they're super expensive. It's an old platform and it hasn't really um, kind of evolved in a way um, to not only make it digestible in price, but to have, you know, the integrations that it needs um, for an e-commerce brand to, um, 
you know, improve that experience. Like we've, we've seen huge improvements. We've seen 60% of decreased of customer service inquiries for our brand Catbird MYC. It's a, a jewelry brand that Meg Markle wore on her wedding day. Could you imagine what that would do, right? Just from a customer service experience perspective, think about what it would do from shipping something back and you have to manually update, you know, all these systems. Um, well, we're streamlining that entire back order process. Like Catbird had three full-time employees receiving packages and having to open it up and then finding the order, scanning it and bringing it back in. Well, all you have to do now is we provide you the RMA code. They scan it, it updates the system and it's done. So it, it helps for the consumer and the merchant because that's an expensive process. So I'd say there's a huge opportunity there as well. Yeah, definitely. I've heard a lot about that recently, actually. Um, stores, particularly stores who have free returns policies, it basically mm. encourages people to order more than they need because uh, they they either test it, don't like it, send it back, or they've got no intention of keeping it, actually. You know, they do it for the quick Instagram photo, um, send it back, and then there's a massive issue with, you know, restocking. You know, what do you, what do you do with that product? And I think a lot of them, basically, a lot of the companies ditch the product pretty much, or send it up, send it to an outlet store or something, and basically write it mm -hmm. off. So there's definitely opportunities there. Um, I appreciate we're, we're kind of running out of time. So, um, do you have any pet peeves when it comes to marketing? Yeah, no worries. Um, you know, I'd say, you know, just missing the unified commerce boat and not leveraging the data from all those channels and having excessive messaging or automated messaging or stuff that's not personal personalized. Like there was an email platform I'm thinking about using here for Imagination Media and I got four automated touch points in six hours and it was not even for what I was trying to do and it was driving me crazy. So I reached yeah. out to the rep just saying, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I'm interested in using your solution, but not based off of what this messaging is trying to tell me. And I think it comes down to some brands think that they know their customers when they really don't. And they didn't take the, take the time to plan, test, and reiterate. So I think where brands fall short is where they make that assumption on limited data sets. Yeah. I think my, my particular pet peeve with that is uh, when I, I download a, an ebook or, or a white paper or something, and within hours get a phone call from a salesperson. And, you know, <laughs> I'm not... That downloading an ebook is not me saying, let's have a demo. I'm really interested right. in your product. It's telling you I have an interest in that that space. You you you've hopefully put together an interesting ebook. Um but I've seen it popping up on, on Twitter actually as uh, uh something that annoys people a lot. Um so yeah, just just before we end then, do, is there any particular area of marketing that you think is quite underrated? I mean, branding's huge, right? So I'd say copywriting is paramount how and how it relates to your branding. Um, you know, so for example, a lot of brands focus on paid media, Google search, SEM marketing, but they don't take the time to put in place the correct content and have those systems to tell, you know, to tell you about that audience. Um, so a lot of times, you know, if it's poor content, a lot of it can be attributed to poor copywriting. 
And, you know, a lot of brands, they'll just dump a lot of money into AdWords and they won't do competition research or their email campaigns are off. So it's off branding. And, you know, it's like um, like the CBD brand we just launched. Um, it is a athletic lifestyle brand for anything for pain, anxiety, and um, uh, I'd say pain and anxiety. So that relates to physical athletes, right? That relates to um, anyone going to the gym and they feel sore or, you know, the uncertain state of the world right now of anxiety towards, you know, personal or professional issues. I'm relating to a pretty large segment there. But if I just say that I have a CBD brand for anyone, that's the first mistake you're going to make, right? If it's not targeted towards women um, for you know, the motherly CBD, I forget the name of that brand, but they're doing a pretty good job. They're going to, they're going to make more sales than the other CBD guy that's trying to sell it to everybody. Cause that ultimately that narrative uh, doesn't resonate with anyone. Right. So yeah. uh, it's a bit challenging from a, from an advertising perspective in the hemp space at the moment. But um, I'd say, you know, those are kind of some of my closing comments as it relates to like, you know, peeves when it comes to marketing and, you know, where brands, you know, may fall short and, um, you know, where they need to uh, think, think twice, maybe. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, yeah, it's either brands who have a product which can work for anyone, but, and choose to, to message that, which, yeah, doesn't work or, um, or brands that even sometimes have a product which has quite a specific um, pain point that it targets, but they just don't message it and they don't get those points across. And and you're always going to struggle against someone who who puts the right words in place because those words are the ones that will convince the customer to actually actually buy the product. Absolutely. Um, well, this has been re- really great stuff. Really interesting to hear about uh, unified commerce because it's it's not something that I'd I'd really heard much of before. If people want to get in touch, find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, thanks, uh, William, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I probably spend more time on LinkedIn than I should, but um, you can find me uh, James Danker Jr. D E N K E R. Um, that's one place where you could find me if you want to chat. You know, feel free to. Uh, send me an email at james at imaginationmedia.com. And I'd say those are probably the best two channels. Awesome. Thank you so much, James. Having all this data linked together is so important and so helpful. You can far more easily engage your customers in relevant ways if you've got all the data and all their touch points. Simple things like being able to time a review email based off the fulfillment date can make a big difference. By linking everything up, you can also start to break down some of the walls that appear between or around certain departments. It makes sense. You'd want to know the customer is currently in a complaints process before sending them an email. But most companies just don't link this data to their email platform. And so will quite often email someone despite them having a problem. If you'd like to learn more about Unified Commerce, just reach out to James on LinkedIn. Uh, As always, please email me at will at customerswhoclick.com or tweet me your thoughts and I'll get back to you ASAP. Next up, I've got Joseph Wilkins with me. We're going to be talking about how companies of any type can be using humor-based sales videos to generate fantastic growth. But until then, keep those customers clicking.